welcome to Tuned to Yesterday, featuring programs from radio's past. I'm your host, Mark Livonier. There's true history in this hour, later on from the Cavalcade of America from 1950, but first a broadcast of the wartime program Eyes Aloft, an NBC episode heard on September 7, 1942. The National Broadcasting Company presents Eyes Aloft. Flash. One, multi-motor, high, scene, 15, Joe, four, overhead, southeast. Flying the log, watching the sky, watching the plane, flying the lanes up the log. Flying the log. Eyes the log. Fourth Fighter Command of the United States Army Air Forces, in cooperation with West Coast radio stations, presents this series of Monday evening programs honoring the 150,000 volunteer observers and filter center workers whose round-the-clock vigilance keeps watchful guard of the Pacific Coast against attack by enemy planes. Find the law, night and day, we'll help protect the U.S.A. Ken Carpenter speaking. Tonight, the fourth edition of Eyes Aloft, the gala program this evening, including the presentation of the handsome Eyes Aloft Gold Trophy Award to an outstanding filter center or observation post. Dramatized true stories from the home front. The Gordon Jenkins Orchestra and sportsmen give a musical salute to another branch of national defense. And you'll hear in person from a man and his wife, Mr. and Mrs. Alfred Van Egan, formerly of Amsterdam, Holland. Here now, your Eyes Aloft narrator a man who is helping Hollywood make educational films for the Army and Navy, the well-known newsreel commentator, Gain Whitman. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Let it be understood by those who care that a sinister and deadly evil is beginning to gnaw at the very heart of the Volunteer Ground Observer Corps. Beginning, yes. And there is time to stamp it out we speak of the paid observer replacing the volunteer observer. In Washington, in Oregon, in California, isolated cases of the paid observer have cropped up. You who are responsible for conducting the great work of the aircraft warning service must also serve as its physician. You must recognize the diseases of morale and stamp them out before those diseases assume the proportions of plague. The practice of buying off one's patriotic duty must be blotted out in every case. In the beginning, it's all very insidious, apparently harmless, and seemingly the answer to a confronting obstacle. Here, in an imaginary case, the disease starts to attack something like this. Well, John, you shouldn't have accepted the responsibility as chief observer in this community if you didn't intend to carry through. Well, who says I'm not carrying it through? You just said you were ready to give up the whole thing. Well, I didn't mean it. How do you intend to get more people to help take watches? Now, who's that? Now, how do I know? Shall I take it, John? No, I'll get it. Hello? Yeah? Oh, George. What's wrong? He hasn't. Well, hang on a few minutes. I'll call and see what I can find out. If I can't locate him, I'll be right up myself. Okay, George. Sorry. Can you see, Mary? Was that the post? Sure. Somebody hasn't shown up for a shift? It's uh, so a quarter after eight. Mace Copefield should have been there at eight to relieve, relieve George Schaefer. What's the matter with Copefield? Oh, I don't know. He just hasn't shown up. Oh, brother, would I like to tell a few people off in this town? Too few are doing too much. And those that are are worn out. Farmers are into the second cutting of hay. They can't get labor. The pear and prune crops ripen. They're trying to pick it short-handed. Oh, I don't know what the answer is. Where are you going, John? I thought you were going to telephone Copeland. Oh, what's the use? He knows he had a shift tonight. You're going up to the post? Yeah. To watch till 1 a.m. I'll take it. This is the fourth you've taken this week. You shouldn't do it. Well, somebody has to keep the post going. Oh, well, I'll get my jacket and go up and sit with you. Oh, well, thanks, Mary. I'll, I'll appreciate it. Maybe you should tell this town what you think of it one of these days. Yeah. Yeah, maybe I'll lose my good disposition and do that someday. Come on, Mary, let's go. Well, 
such are the first symptoms. Observers fail to report for ships. The conscientious volunteers begin doubling and tripling their own service. Chief observers begin to fear that they are personally falling down on a community job. Oh, Gain, may I interrupt for one moment? Certainly, Ken. What is it? Well, so that there will be no misunderstanding whatsoever, may we explain that there are over 2,000 observation posts operating in the Pacific Coast area. Most of these posts are manned solely by volunteer civilian observers. However, because some areas are so remote or not populated or for similar reasons and must still be guarded just as any other area, then the Army has assigned observation work to forest service stations or, in a few isolated cases, the Coast Guard, Navy, and Army carry on. And in still rarer cases, paid employees who guard railway bridges or hydroelectric dams assume the role of observers. But the great heart, the very soul of the Ground Observer Corps, is the willing, patriotic, unpaid, civilian volunteer observer. And that's the only way the system can work successfully. That's the way it must be. After all, what true American wants to buy his way out of community and national responsibility? All right, Jane. Now, let's return to the devastating problem which confronts our mythical chief observer. He and his wife have gone out in the night to make their way to the post. Ooh, chilly tonight. Uh, I think we'll have an early fall. Mind the step here, Mary. Yeah. Oh, come in, John. Hello, Mary. Hello, Hi, there. George. I'm sorry about you getting stuck like this, George. Oh, that's all right. It's happened before, and I've lived through it. And you call Miss Copeland, John? No, I didn't. We'll take the watch. Oh, now, John, Mary... Wait a second, quiet. What? Open the door. Plain. Uh, can you see it? No, this is riding light. Single motor heading east. I'll get it. Hmm. Good thing somebody was here. Oh, don't worry. I wouldn't have left till somebody showed up to relieve me. First plane over here this week, and Mace Copeland isn't here to have the honor of reporting. Army flash. One. Single. Low. Heard. Angeles 51, overhead, east. <laughs> you know, it makes a fella feel important to be calling right in direct to the United States Army about these things. That, uh... More people ought to feel that way about it. Uh, I'm pretty discouraged tonight, George. I don't think I'm doing a good job as chief observer. Oh, now, now, sit down. I want to tell you about a plan I figured out tonight. See what you think of it. Well, I'm going to sit here about the stove. Thanks for one. I'm getting to the point where I'd like to tell every slacker in this town what I think. Well, that won't help you any. I'm tired of begging them to help. Every other town in this whole county has well-manned observation posts. Look at ours. Well, there's only a couple of hundred people in our burg, John. Yes, and only 23 of them helping to run this post. It irritates me so when I hear people laugh and say, Oh, the Japs will never come and bob Midvale. Yeah. Don't they know they're only part of a big system? Don't they know the world is bigger than just Midvale? Oh, you're upset tonight, John. Yes, I am upset. And by thunder, I, I got a notion to go up to that lumber mill at noontime tomorrow and give those mill workers a little stump speech. Now, you get in trouble. Uh, now, listen, John. Here's my idea, and I think it might work. Uh, oh, what is it? Well, uh, the women are keeping the daytime shifts pretty well manned. It's the night shifts that are hard to keep filled. Now you're telling me. Well, now, during harvest season, some of the men are working awful hours trying to get their work done. Uh, don't I know it? Uh, you know that Mrs. Ibbett who lives on the edge of town with her two kids? Yeah. She's a widow, and she's been on relief since she came here. Oh, what about her? Well, why couldn't us observers all chip in, say, 50 cents a month and hire Mrs. Ibbett to take over the night watch? Help her, and at the same time, help us. Hey, not bad. Well, that's a wonderful idea, George. <laughs> but wait. There are only 23 observers. Even if we all put in a dollar a month, that's only $23. Mrs. Zibbett wouldn't work for that. Uh, well, the whole town ought to be asked to contribute. I thunder. I know what I'm going to do. Now, John, please. I will go up to that sawmill tomorrow noon. I'll ask those men, as long as they aren't putting in any time as observers, to hand out a little money regularly. Now, look, I'll John, tell them what I think of their such an easy way to solve the problem. Pay somebody to handle the watches. But what a black mark on a community fully capable of manning a boat. Did they realize they were making a mercenary of Mrs. Ibbett and making of themselves dollar, no, four-bit patriots? True enough, they were sincere, but they were also short-sighted. So next day, well-meaning, blundering John went to the mill at noon, turned into a stump speaker, pouring out the things that were in his heart. Some of the more rowdy transient workers openly laughed at it. It's for our homes. 
We're doing this work for the Army, for America. I'll vote for you, brother. <laughs> oh, shut up. Let John say what he wants. Go on, John. Now, I'm getting sore now. Some of you are laughing at what I'm trying to tell you. Well, when I look at your faces, I can pick you out. One by one. A year ago, those of you who are ridiculing me now were on relief. Taking money from the government. Yes, and people like me were paying their way. Now the nation's at war. The mill is open, going strong, and paying you big wages. And you're spending your money like water. When the war is over, you'll be broke again. I mean, like myself, I'll have to go back to supporting you again. Why don't you hire a hole? You birds have no community spirit, no national loyalty. What do you want us to do? Go around and wave a flag? No! I want you to spend some of your time to share the job of running our local observation post. Now, when do you think the Japs are coming to bomb midday? <laughs> Give the man a chance. What do you want, John? Since you birds won't put in your time, will you put in a few dollars of your money to help pay to hire a regular nighttime observer? Come on, boys. Here's a hat. Pass it around. Drop in your contribution. Come on. Come on. Put something in Well, you can't buy this sort of thing any more than you can buy the loyalty of a soldier. The community who fails to look upon the aircraft warning service as an honorable, worthwhile venture, a link in home protection, is indeed a sad thinking community. No, you can't buy love for country any more than you can buy mother love. There must be an intense, burning community spirit to carry on this work on the 100% volunteer basis, or the observation post in that location is destined for failure. By experience, this is what invariably happens. First month. Bill, we're hiring Mrs. Ibbett as a paid observer for night watches. You won't have to take a shift anymore if you'll give me 50 cents a month. Say, say, that's great. Keep the post running and I get my sleep besides. Uh, 50 cents a month, you say? Oh, well, that's wonderful. I'll go for that idea. <laughs> Here you are, John. Uh, four bits. <laughs> the second month that the community has a paid observer... How about 50 cents, Bill? Huh? 50 cents? For what? You know, the woman we're hiring as observer. Huh? Oh, yeah, I forgot. Here. Say, how long is this thing going on anyway? History of the few such cases of paid observers that exist shows this community attitude the third month. Well, Bill, I'm back again. First of the month, four bits, please. Oh, now, look, John. I don't see why I should keep on dishing out. Why didn't everybody? Why didn't everybody help with the watcher shift? Well, that's different, but I don't want to keep on shelling out four bits a month forever. Uh, you better just count me out from now on. Okay, Bill, whatever you say. You're the fifth person who's told me that this month. Okay, Bill, we'll count you out. What seemed to be a good idea turned out to be a bad one. Community morale was destroyed. Because of apathy, disinterest, bad management, the post failed. Every post that has resorted to the paid observer method is eventually destined to become a weak and inefficient link in the volunteer civilian army that protects the Pacific coast from a possible invasion by enemy planes. Of the several thousand posts in this area, fortunately, there are only a few which have resorted to the paid observer system. Those few must be stamped out before the disease spreads. To be maintained successfully, the Aircraft Warning Service must come as a free contribution of service right from the hearts of the people. May the watch cry ever be, eyes aloft. A feature of our show growing in popularity is the McKinley Diary. The centrally located McKinley, Oregon Post seems to typify the true spirit of the Ground Observer Corps. The distant drone of a small sawmill finds its way down from out of the hills, and the drone loses itself among the trees of the Green Valley Hollow. There is the distant lowing of cattle, the call of a bawling calf to its mother across the pasture. An auto shatters tread-worn tires along the dusty gravel road that bends through the little valley. A tan-faced observer quietly sits in an old chair leaned back against the outside of the unpainted little frame shack that squats beneath the great old cherry tree. His ears have heard the drone of the sawmill and the ball of the calf and the whir of the passing motor car. But they are not sounds to concern him, for he is attuned to hear only the approaching whine of an airplane. Though the vigil is never broken, few planes are ever seen over McKinley Post. To while away the long hours, 
Watchers record it in their diary. Each week, we read one or two brief entries, word for word, just as they were written by McKinley Post observers. Here now, let's turn to some page at random. June 7th, Sunday. Just returned from the funeral of Cookie, Jerry's classmate and pal. I shall miss his cheerful face and quaint sayings if I drive the children to and from school this year as I did last. Mabel O'Sullivan. And over here on the next page, June 8th, Monday. A new page and a new day for us here in the peace and quiet of our home. But there are other very sad events not caused by war that strike in our midst. I am taking the watch today in the place of Mrs. Cook, one of our most faithful watchers. She has just lost one of the most precious treasures given her by God. Cookie has been taken home by him to dwell forever in the land of happiness and peace. This is a little poem I've written tonight while on duty. I dedicate it to a dear little boy who has now gone away. Your little friends will miss you when back to school they go. They'll miss your smile, your face so fair, for Cookie won't be there. His desk is empty. His books are gone. But his words and smiles still linger on. And from above, an angel fair whispers, Fear not, for Cookie will be there. And when you gather in the playground beyond the shining blue, you'll find the loving master waiting there to welcome you. A look around that classroom at shining faces there. And in the midst of all that group, Cookie will be there. Mildred King. Now, here is Ken Carpenter to talk with a man and a woman who have come to make America their new home. The gentleman, a well-known lecturer, writer, and newspaper correspondent of Amsterdam, Holland. Meet Mr. and Mrs. Alfred Van Egan. How long have you and Mrs. Van Egan been in America, sir? We arrived in New York in 1939. Yes. This coming November, we will proudly celebrate our third year in this wonderful country. 1939. Well, then, were you people in Holland when war broke out? No, Mrs. Van Egan and I were in France. I was in that country at the time gathering material for a series of articles for the Amsterdam newspaper, The Telegraph. Oh, I see. Alfred and I were in Paris when Germany attacked France. Yes, we saw Paris experience her first blackout. Well, uh, how long did you stay in France after the outbreak of the war, Mrs. Van Egan? We left at once for our homeland. You see, my husband was an executive member of the Netherlands Red Cross Committee, and he felt that he would be needed. I am sorry to say that my fears were not completely shared by Hollanders in general. Few seemed to feel that Hitler would ever attack the Low Countries. Uh, what did you do after you got home to Amsterdam? My newspaper commissioned me to go to America and write a series of articles about the American war attitude. After Mrs. Van Egan and I arrived here and traveled about, we found ourselves in love with America and its people. Uh, where were you when America entered the war? Visiting friends in Encinitas, California. I was writing a book at the time, but when war broke out, my wife and I decided that writing should be secondary, that we must spend our every effort in trying to assist the nation we had grown to admire and respect. Well, that's, that's fine, but you're both Hollanders. We have both taken out our first citizen's papers now. Oh, well, I didn't know. That's splendid. We both went right to work, Mr. Carpenter, in the community that had accepted us. From last February on, we have shared the work as ground observers at the Lucadia Post. Three months ago, I was pleased 
at being asked to organize the local Antonitis rationing board. That takes six days a week, but I still have time to continue serving as an aircraft warning service observer. Elsa and I intend to help all we can as long as we are needed in all of America's war efforts. Well, more people should have the same appreciation and interest in doing for our nation at this time. Now, one thing, Mr. Van Egan, do you know anything about any aircraft warning service that Holland might have had? Well, in poor Holland, at the outbreak of the war, the Dutch army had an unorganized skeleton aircraft warning service. Yes. If Holland had been awake and prepared as America is today, the story might have been different. Yes, Holland lost pretty quickly, didn't she? Mr. Carpenter, Holland lost in the first half hour of its war with Hitler. Germans made a surprise attack at 4 a.m. 30 minutes later, the entire Dutch air fleet in Holland had been paralyzed. That's fast work, horrible work. That's why Americans must keep our volunteer civilian aircraft warning service in constant operation. When and if the Japs ever come, this country will be prepared. America's fighting planes will be warned in time. They will be in the air to defend this nation. Well, thank you, Mr. and Mrs. Alfred Van Egan. Our last true life story for today comes from an observation post in Grays Harbor County in the state of Washington. The post is located in the center of the picturesque town of Hump Tulip on the Olympic Peninsula. Early this summer, an amazing incident happened there. It proved the courage of the observers who operate Hump Tulip's post. Mid-afternoon, two watchers, Mrs. Eleanor Randall and Mrs. A.K. Harris were on duty. Miss Kraft was just arriving to relieve them. Well, I'm here, ladies. As we saw you coming, Marjorie. You're ten minutes early. How are you, Mrs. Harris? Fine, Mrs. Randall. We're fine. Did you get to report any planes this watch? No, we were just looking at the logbook. Hasn't been a plane reported from our post since last Friday. Well, I think I'll go on home. Stop in at the store and get a few chops for dinner. You coming now, Mrs. Harris? Thank you. Wait a minute. Don't I hear something? You mean a plane? Quiet. Listen. I'm going out and look. I do hear a plane. There it is. It's flying low. Well, come in and report it. I think there's something wrong with its motor. Here? Say, I never saw a plane like that before. It does look strange. It's a bi-motor. I'll report it right away. You people keep your eyes on it. Yes, we will. I think it's going to land somewhere over back in there. Oh, hello. Uh, Army Flash. One, bi-motor, low, seen, Aberdeen, 124, northwest. Well, can you still see... Oh, my heavens, do you see that? Something fell out of it. It's a man. There, look. See his parachute opened. There's another one. And there's another one. I'll bet this is what we've been watching for. A Jap attack by air. Well, if it is, those paratroopers have probably got machine guns and bombs and everything to attack with. We've got to do something. Oh, oh, dear. I, see a man anywhere on the street. I thought I saw your husband going to store down the street. Oh, oh, let's go. We're getting Somebody has to stay here and keep the post in operation in case of trouble. Well, I'll say you two go. Get oh, Lloyd Randall or somebody. Do something. Lloyd! Lloyd! What is it? Oh, an airplane flew over. Dropped down. Uh, paratroopers. We're being attacked. Where? What? Floor lights. Some tulips observers ran out onto the street, a shotgun, their only weapon. They jumped into a truck that was standing outside. A few other men boarded the back of the truck. They sped off down the street. When they got to the edge of the pasture, these hearty guerrilla warriors plowed their truck through a barbed wire fence. Bumped across the pasture, finally coming to a sudden stop with one wheel spinning in a puddle. What's the matter, Lord? We stuck? Yeah. Oh, dear. Get out, boys. Yeah, you on. women, stay on the truck. Oh, oh, be careful, boys. All three of them Japs are down the ground now, boys. Oh, look. Here comes one of them now. Let me get a shell in this old shotgun. I'll show them what they're up against. Somewhere or other, I don't think they're Japs. Yeah. Why, look. This man's coming is... It's quiet. Right. Yeah, yeah, wait. I'll call to him. Hey, hey, who are you? You better halt. I'm not going to stop and put on that fool shotgun. Well, he, he looks like one of our American soldiers. I kind of think we made a mistake, folks. It looks okay to me. You shoot any holes in my hide and Uncle Sam will sue you. 
Say, what is this? Where did you fellas come from? Oh, me and my two buddies over there, we just dropped in. <laughs> we saw that. We're Army Air Corps, Graysfield. Oh? Well, we're ground observers, hump tulips folks. How'd you like that? We thought you fellas was Japs. We were about to let you have it. Well, our plane had motor trouble. Three of us bailed out, so our captain would have a better chance to make a forced landing over there. Oh, it must take an awful lot of nerve to jump out of an airplane with nothing but a parachute. Say, talking about nerve, I'd say you people are the ones with the nerve. What you mean, son? Well, I mean, if you thought we were Japs making an attack... Well, uh, I mean, you people came out here to put up a fight with nothing but a shotgun. That's real nerve. Who said we had nothing but a shotgun with us? What do you mean, Jim? Oh, look at this, what I got. Grabbed it up on the way. A nice, sharp, two-headed logger's axe. I was ready to show those Japs a thing or two myself. <laughs> Such chances come to few observers. But when the opportunity did arise, humorous as it turned out to be, the people of Hump Tulip's post fairly faced the enemy. That sample of bravery is an example of the spirit back of the highly successful Hump Tulip's Washington Observation Post. It is one of the strong links in the vast aircraft warning service of the 4th Fighter Command. Eyes Aloft, on June to yesterday from the 7th of September, 1942, on NBC. You are listening to an hour of true history on June to yesterday. I'm your host, Mark LeVonier. An hour broadcast of The Cavalcade of America, co-written by Robert Tallman, a prolific writer during radio's yesteryear, writing seemingly countless broadcasts of The Cavalcade Show, and also the adventure series The Voyage of the Scarlet Queen and Escape, and episodes of Suspense and the program Inner Sanctum Mysteries. Who knows what will permeate in this next story, based on historical fact, called Yankee Doodle Debbie, an NBC episode from September 26, 1950. Tonight's DuPont Cavalcade, starring Joan Caulfield as Deborah Sampson, begins late at night in the kitchen of Squire Bradford in the little New England town of Middleborough, Four Corners. The year is 1782, the seventh year of the American Revolution. Debbie. What? Debbie Sampson, where are you going this late at night? Never you mind, Daniel Williams. You just pretend you didn't see me. A servant's got no call to be leaving her master's house in the dead of night. You come back here. Daniel Williams, if you so much as breathe that you saw me going out... And what's I... this bundle you're carrying? Let me see. No, don't touch it. Clothes. Oh. A suit of men's clothes. Debbie, what's the meaning of this? Oh, if you must know, I'm running away. I'm going to enlist in the Continental Army. Enlist in the Continental... You a girl? You must be daft. I'll disguise myself. Disguise? I've thought about this for a long time, Dan. I know what I'm doing. Now leave me go. But, Debbie, if they discover you and send you back here, the townspeople will run you out. They won't put up with a woman dressing herself in a man's clothing and They doing... won't catch me. You wait and see. They won't catch me. <laughs> Are you... are you the recruiting officer, sir? That I am, lot. What can I do for you? I want to join the Continental Army. <laughs> you want to join the Continental Army? Kind of young, ain't you? Yes, sir. I mean, no, sir. How old are you, Sonny? Eighteen. Voice kind of late changing, ain't it? I've got a cold. Hmm. What's your name? Graham Ross. Graham Ross. From where? Up in Plymouth? Where? I'm from Plymouth myself. Oh, you are? Ross. There aren't any Rosses in Plymouth. Well, well, sir, I'm an orphan. Perhaps that's why you don't remember the name. Tell me, lad, what's afoot? What are you hiding from me? Come on now, come well, on, come on. I'll tell you. But I hope it won't make any difference. I mean, in my getting in the army. Go ahead. I'm not 18. I'm 17. But you want to fight, eh? Yes, sir. And you were hunkering to die. Only if need be. Then why make it more needful than need be? Because when this war is won and America is free, I want to say I helped to fight for it. Well spoken, lad. Well spoken. You're in. You're in the Continental Army. Here's your bounty money. One hundred Continental dollars. But, but don't I get a uniform and a must? You'll be outfitted tomorrow. No. Let us repair to the Four Corners Tavern, lad, and I'll help you drink up that bounty money. Drink? Hmm, every soldier worth the name drinks up his bounty money before he gets his uniform. Is that an army regulation, sir? 
Um, practically. But I've never tasted spiritus liquors. And in a public tavern. By the eternal, are you a man or a cringing female? I'm a man, sir. Then come along, and like a man, drink up your bounty. Another flogging of ale for Private Ross. Please, sir, I'd rather not. Aim no mind, landlord. A flogging of your strongest for the two of us. Right you are, Sergeant. I'll get it sir. for you. Sir. Hey, lad. Sir, I thank you for your company, but I'm feeling a little dizzy, and, and I'd better go and engage my lodgings for the night while, while I'm yet able to see my way to the inn. Why, bless you, lad. You've no need to engage your lodging. You'll bunk in my room this night. Huh? Oh, no. I, I mean... Uh, I snore, sir. Yes, sir, I snore most fearfully. And so do I. Or so my wife used to tell me, rest her soul. <laughs> we'll snore in harmony, eh, lad? Oh, it's, it's most kind of you, sir, but I can't. I just can't. You can't? And why, may I ask? Uh, no offense, Sergeant, but you see, I, I've i always slept in a room to myself. And do you expect a room to yourself as a private foot soldier in the Continental Army? Oh, no. No, sir, but... Where so many are together, it's almost the equal of being alone. Or so I should think. Do I understand you to say you'd rather sleep in a barrack with a company of stinking foot soldiers than in my comfortable quarters? Well, sir, when men are fighting for their country, tis permissible to stink a little. Why, blast your impudence. On your feet, Raptalia. What are you going to do, sir? Give you a lesson in manner. Sir, I meant no offense. I truly... Oh, there she is. And there she is, the one who stole my clothes. Arrest her. Now, now, easy there. What seems to be the trouble, sir? Oh, all right, Roger Hutton. Your holiday is over. Squire's carriage is waiting outside to take you home. I won't go, Roger Hutton, and you can't make me. Well, in a prison you'll go for the theft of my best suit of clothes. I only borrowed it. I was going to mail it back to you as soon as I got my uniform. You, uniform? That's right. I don't know who you are, sir, but this young man is no longer subject to civilian law. He's a soldier in the Continental Army. P a soldier? Is General Washington recruiting women nowadays? Go on, lad, hit him. You don't have to take that from any man. No, 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 just a moment, Sergeant. But this so-called soldier you recruited is no soldier at all. She's Deborah Sampson, an indentured servant in the household of Squire Bradford of Plymouth. And the clothes she's wearing are mine, which she stole in order to flee from her lawful employment. I didn't steal them. I only borrowed them. And as for my lawful employment, I was indentured for my father's debts under the tyrannical law of George III, which will no more be law when we have won our fight for freedom. And, and, and furthermore, Roger Hutton, I think it was wicked and cruel of you to come here like this and... and oh, I wish I was dead. There, there, now, don't take on so. That's no way for a soldier to act. I'm sorry. Lend me your handkerchief, will you, Sergeant? A handkerchief? Yes. She is a woman. Quiet, quiet, everyone. Quiet. Mistress Sampson, you will stand here before the town council and the citizens of Plymouth. Yes, Mr. Brody. Now, Mistress Sampson... You have heard the grave charges brought against you by Roger Hutton. I have. We can only conclude that you were possessed of the devil when you cut your hair, dressed in stolen men's clothing, and imbibed spiritous liquors in a tavern with men. Black, quietly, black, taking account of your tender years and the natural weakness of your sex, the town council is disposed to pardon you if you can convince us that you are truly repentant. Mr. Brody, respected members of the town council, and all my friends of Plymouth, I am guilty of all the charges against me. But I don't repent what I have done, and I would do it again. Why is it that when a man wants to fight for his country, it is an admirable thing? But when a woman does so, she is possessed by the devil. Freedom is not the business of men alone, but of every man and woman and child in this land. 
I only regret that I was prevented from making it mine. But I'm not done with trying, and next time I will not fail. <laughs> Mistress Sampson, you leave us no choice. From this day forward, until such time as you see fit to repent your actions, you are banished from the Fellowship of Plymouth Town. So be it. They may banish you too, Roger, for speaking to me. Oh, Debbie, I beg of you. Reconsider. Don't put this terrible thing on my conscience. Why didn't you think of that when you charged me before the council? I never dreamed you'd defy them. I only wanted to frighten some sense into you. Look, Debbie, I've got a little money saved up. Enough to buy a farm and, and buy your freedom from the squire. You can't buy my freedom. Nor your own, Roger Hutton. You didn't used to think I was such a bad lot. Oh, I don't know. I'm only sorry for you. Now, Debbie, you're not going to try this foolish masquerade again. You'll be found out and thrown into prison. Oh, what a child you are. Go back with the rest of the sheep. Debbie, you'll be punished for this wickedness. March my words. Joan of Arc was burned at the stake. But I'm afraid I'm not wicked enough to deserve her fate. But you may be wounded and disfigured. Even that might serve a purpose. A few battle scars to show my grandchildren. A reminder of the cost of freedom. For a generation that may have forgotten it. Oh, Debbie, there's no telling what might become of you. I'm sorry, Roger. I must do what I have to do. And that's to join the army. Goodbye. It is the month of June, 1782. Deborah's plan has worked. So determined was her purpose and so thorough her disguise as a boy that on her second attempt, she succeeded in being accepted into the Continental Army. She is now wearing its uniform and has taken the name Private Robert Shirtliff. As our second act opens, she is marching across the village common of Lemonster, Massachusetts with Captain George Webb's company of the 4th Massachusetts Regiment. Captain Webb reporting, Colonel. Company all present and accounted for. Good, Captain. We march within the hour. I hope there are no green replacements in your company. We'll be marching south and probably fighting Indian style most of the way, every man for himself. I have one new recruit, Colonel. Oh? He's young, sir, but he's clever and stronger than he looks. He walked 70 miles to enlist and made it in three days. 70 miles? Why didn't he enlist closer to his home? He said he'd heard of you, sir, and wanted to serve with your regiment. Well, <clears throat> I'd like to meet this lad. Very well, sir. Sheriff? Yes, sir? Ray Grant? No. Come forward. Well, well, well. How old do you say this lad is? State your age, soldier. Eight, <clears throat> 18, sir. Ah, sure you're not lying about your age? Yes, sir. I, I mean, no, sir. Of course, my eyes are not as good as they were once, but I, I can't detect a single whisker on that face of yours. Why is that? Why, why, uh, well, all the men in my family have light beards, sir. Hmm, and light voices? Yes, yes, sir. Captain Webb, do you take full responsibility for this soldier? Colonel, in the short time since his enlistment, this soldier has won the respect and admiration of the entire company. We have a long, hard march ahead of us. It'll be desperate fighting, but if you say he's up to it, so be it. I hold you responsible. Corporal Bean. Yes, Shirtley. What is it? If you go on marching without tending to that foot... What do you expect me to do? If you'll drop out for just two minutes, I have a bottle of liniment and a bandage in my blanket. A bottle of liniment? Yes. You never know when it's going to come in handy. Captain Webb, sir. What is it, Shirtliff? Begging your pardon, sir. But the mess sergeant was suffering something awful with a sore back, so I put him to bed with a mustard plaster. Oh, you did? And how did you think we were going to eat without the mess sergeant? Well, I'll be glad to cook, sir. I know a thing or two about seasoning a stew. Shirtliff, is there anything you don't know a thing or two about? Oh, yes, sir. Listen to them out there singing, Colonel. Ordinarily, they'd be grumbling, swearing after a march like today's. And Shirtless got them singing. But it's not only what he does himself, Colonel, it's the effect on the men. He cheers them up, reminds them what we're fighting for. 
Captain Webb, what you tell me about this beardless wonder is remarkable. That's why I think he should be promoted, Colonel. Maybe a sergeant. Uh, well, Captain, ordinarily, as you say, I'd recommend a top non-commissioned rank for him, but I don't know. How would the men react to taking orders from a beardless boy? I no longer doubt his age, but uh, there's a certain something about him. Yes, I know what you mean, sir. I felt that, too. But still... Besides, we really know so little about him, don't we? Have you talked to him much? Oh, yes, yes, he's talkative enough. Yet, come to think of it, I've come away from talking with him each time no wiser than I was before. Uh, you see? When it comes to keeping a man in the dark about his past... He's as tricky as a woman. It, there's always the possibility that he might be an enemy agent. Why, oh, to take my commission, he's not colonel. All the same, I'd like to make sure. Send him around to see me. Maybe a little brandy will loosen his tongue. Private Shirtliff reporting, sir? Sit down, lad. Yes, sir. Thank you, sir. <laughs> relax, lad, relax. You're not going to be disciplined. Yes, sir. I mean, no, sir. Like some brandy? Thank you, sir, but I'd rather not. Oh, as you wish. <sighs> what a beautiful bouquet. French brandy. Presented to me by Lafayette. <laughs> sure you won't have a taste of it? Uh, no, sir. Never knew a soldier turned down brandy after a hard day's march. Unless he was nursing a secret. A secret, sir? Come now, there's something on your mind, Shirtliff. Why not confide in me? I'm sorry if my manner offends the colonel. What? Oh, not at all. No, on the contrary, I find your manner most pleasing. And uh, Captain Webb has brought me a most satisfactory report of your conduct on the march. Captain Webb is very kind, sir. And in fact, we talked about making a sergeant out of you. A sergeant? Yes, would you like that? I'm not sure that I'm qualified, sir. Now, look here, Shirtliff. A certain amount of modesty is becoming in a young man, but don't overdo it. I'm sorry, sir. In, in fact, uh, that is one report I have of you that I don't like. It seems that you are quite excessively modest. Modest to a fault. I'm... I'm afraid I don't know what you mean, sir. Ah, you know perfectly well what I mean. When the men bathe in the river, you go upstream and bathe apart from them. <laughs> when the men strip to the waist to push a supply wagon over a hill, you stay in full uniform. Oh, Colonel, you forced me to make a confession. Ah, so there is a secret. Yes, I... I have a deformity. Deformity? A mark, sir. A livid birthmark on my shoulder. No. When I was a child, the people in town wouldn't let their children come near me because they said it was the mark of the devil. Nonsense. Why, well, I have a birthmark myself. <laughs> but you know how the common soldiers are, yes, sir. Yes, yes. Well, you've taken the wisest course. Keep your secret, Shirtliff. And if the men cause you any trouble, let me know about it. Better still, I'll make you my orderly. You can bunk here in my quarters. Oh, no, sir. Eh? I mean, I... I... I have... Appreciate the colonel's kindness, but I think I, I would prefer to stay with my company. May I ask why? Well, sir, I joined this army to fight with saber and musket for freedom, and by your leave, I'll do it. Shirtliff, there's something almost suspicious in your eagerness to fight. Oh no, Colonel, it's just that well, it... you'll get your chance. I'm sending Captain Webb's company on a dangerous scouting party tomorrow morning. Oh, thank you, sir. You're welcome. But you're entirely welcome. Private Shirtliff? Yes, sir? Ride to the rear and tell Lieutenant Bailey we've sighted the Croton River. The Lancey's raiders are ambushed somewhere between here and the river. The company will split up in pairs and reconnoiter the woods on foot. You have all that? Yes, sir. Will I be going with you, sir? If you want to, yes. But remember, no more stopping with mustard plasters and liniment. This is every man for himself. Yes, sir. Sorry, sir. I didn't It's mean... all right. It's all right. Down here a minute. Do you see them? No. They're somewhere in these woods, but they're not telling us where. Shh. Nothing but the peaceful sounds of the countryside. That's a Phoebe calling, sir. Well, we've got... Really? Well, we've got to flush these redcoats out. The only way to do that is to go straight on and draw their fire. Yes, sir. You stay here behind cover while I go on, and when they fire at me, spot them and return their fire. 
I'd rather go with you if I may. You know, Shirtliff, I don't know whether this eagerness to go with me comes from bravery or fear of being left alone here. But if you want to, come on. Keep your musket at ready. This is exciting, isn't it? Shh, just walk and don't talk. They cover, they've seen us. All right, redcoat. Go ahead, Shirtliff, shoot. Shirtliff, return the fire. Do you have fire? Oh, oh. Shirtliff, you won't it. No. No, go, go ahead. I'm all right. Don't be foolish. Let me see that wound. Loosen your tunic. If you come near me, I'll run you through with the saber. Are you daft? No stopping for casualties, you said. Every man for himself. Well, at least let me carry you to better cover. No, I'm all right. Go on. All right, then. But stay here. We've located the enemy. I've got to get back and report to the colonel. Don't try to move. I'll send someone to get you in a wagon and take you back to a doctor. I'm glad you've come, Captain Webb. I'm sorry, Dr. Benny, that I couldn't get here sooner. Where is Shirtliff? Over here, Captain. Is he all right? I can't make him out. He lies there fully dressed in his uniform. He's allowed me to treat the wound in his forearm, but he refuses to let me examine him for further injuries. He's a very stubborn fellow, Dr. Benny. I'm afraid a fever has set in because of the long time his wound went without attention. Oh, here he is. Ah, poor lad. Shirtliff, are you awake? Dr. Minnie. Let me see. There's a very faint pulse. Here now, step back a bit. I want to get this tunic off him, and perhaps we... Captain Webb. Yes? Are you sure this is the... Man who served in your company of the 4th Massachusetts Regiment? Yes, Doctor. This is the man. This is incredible. Captain, I shall remove Private Shirtlift to my own home, where my wife will act as nurse and I can be in attendance day and night. We can't let this soldier die until the world has heard her story. <laughs> Private Shirtliff reporting from sick leave, Captain Webb. Private Shirtliff, <clears throat> has, um, has Dr. Benny led you to think that your reception back to my company might be of an unusual nature? Why, no, sir. Uh, he's told you nothing? Only that I'm well enough to resume my duties from the medical point of view. At the medical point of view, yes. Uh, Private Shirtliff, have you enjoyed making a fool out of me in the whole Continental Army? I beg your pardon, sir. Yes, and well, you might. I don't understand. Oh, of course, I was a fool not to have suspected. Anyone who would carry a bottle of liniment and mustard plasters in his blanket. Anyone who could season a stew the way you did. What's the matter, sir? The matter, sir, is that you are a girl. Oh. Oh, I think I'm going to faint. Private Shirtliff? Yes, yes, sir. As my last order to you, I order you not to faint. I'll, I'll try not to, sir. Here. Here, sit down. You know all about me. I'll be drummed out of the army. If it were in my power, you'd be decorated. Then can I stay on in the army? You won't tell on me. Listen to me. You've done more than your share. Go back home to the peaceful life you knew before you joined in the service of liberty. But, sir... Not every woman, nor every man for that matter, can fight with saber and musket. But we can all fight in our own way to defend the rights and liberties we've won, Private Shirt. What is your name, your real name? Debbie. Deborah Sampson. Debbie. I want to fight, Captain, with the Army. Couldn't you please forget I'm a girl and let me go on fighting? I'm afraid I couldn't. But in a sense, you will go on fighting. The men won't soon forget the girl who gave up everything to shoulder a musket with them. No, I don't think they will forget their Yankee Doodle Debbie. Thus, Deborah Sampson, one of the first heroines of our republic. Honorably discharged from the Continental Army in 1783, she returned to civilian life, married, and had three children... In 1792, the Massachusetts legislature granted her a pension, and in 1818, 
the federal government awarded her one for life. And even in our own time, our nation has not forgotten Yankee Doodle Debbie. For in 1944, a Liberty ship bearing her name, the Deborah Sampson, was launched to do its bit as she did hers in another great American struggle for freedom. Thanks to Joan Caulfield and the Cavalcade players for tonight's drama, Yankee Doodle Debbie. Miss Caulfield will return in a moment. And now our star, Joan Caulfield. Thank you. Being back with the Cavalcade players is always a pleasure for me. And we hope you enjoyed our story tonight. As for next week's show, the star will be Robert Young. Bob is coming back to Cavalcade to play the father of an unusual American family with its trials and troubles. But above all, its heartwarming courage. Better not miss it. Good night. Tonight's original DuPont play, Yankee Doodle Debbie, was written by Robert Tallman and Robert Anderson. Joan Caulfield is currently starring in Columbia Pictures' Technicolor production, The Petty Girl. Music for the DuPont Cavalcade was composed by Arden Cornwell and conducted by Donald Vores. The program is directed by John Zoller. Cy Harris speaking. The Cavalcade of America, on tuned to yesterday from the 26th of September, 1950, on NBC, bringing the curtain down on this hour of true history, on tuned to yesterday. Be sure to be with us next time for more great programs from Radio's Past. Until our next hour together, I'm Mark Levonier. Thanks for listening. <laughs>